Thank you very much, uh, Morgan, for your time. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. So many people have been looking forward to it. And uh, it's really great to have somebody uh, like you. Just to do a brief introduction, uh, Morgan Housel is a partner at the Collaborative Fund and a former columnist at the Motley Fool and Wall Street Journal. Collaborative Fund invests in various companies, including one that operates here in Kenya, many of us here in Kenya know Tala, so Collaborative, Collaborative Fund has invested in Tala. He's a two-time winner of the Best in Business Award from the Society of American Business Editors and Writers, and is winner of the New York Times Sydney Award, and a two-time finalist for the Gerald Loeb Award for Distinguished Business and Financial Journalism. And of course, recently published uh, your third book, Morgan, that is The Psychology of Money, Timeless Lessons on Wealth, Greed, and Happiness, a book that has gained a lot of traction, and we just want to hear a bit of your thoughts around why you wrote this book and some of the things that you have shared uh, in this particular book. So maybe by way of introduction and getting to know you just a little bit more than this, uh, do you think you could give us a thumbnail sketch of, sketch of your life and your interest in the finance, money, and investment area, how you got where you are and writing a lot of thoughts in this area. Sure. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to do this. It's morning for me. I know it's afternoon for you, but a little bit about my background. I mean, I, I've always been interested in finance. I always knew that I would work in finance. Even when I was a teenager, I just loved, you know, I, when I didn't know anything about it, I was very interested in investing, very interested in finance. And I thought I would work in finance. I thought I would be a banker or a private equity investor, maybe a hedge fund manager. That was really what I wanted to do. Um, I never thought in a million years, I would go into writing or be a financial writer, never part of the plan. And in fact, I think if you had told me that when I was in my early 20s, I would have been really disappointed that that's where I ended up. But I stumbled across a writing job in 2008 when the economy was falling apart and there were not a lot of jobs. Uh, the job that I could find was a, was a financial writer for The Motley Fool. That was what, and I didn't, I didn't even necessarily want to do it. It was just that was what was available at the time. Um, so I thought, okay, I'll do this until I can find another finance job. But I ended up really falling in love with writing. I'd always been in, you know, interested in investing, but writing is something that I didn't think I would like until I started doing it. And it turns out that I didn't just like it. I actually loved it. It was a really great, uh, you know, writing, I think, is more about communicate. It's more than just communicating. Writing is a way to clarify your own thoughts, to have all these vague ideas floating around in your brain and being able to really uh, clarify them on paper in a way that makes you really uh, figure out a lot of these vague ideas that you have. Once you put them into paper, they become much clearer to you so that you can either... <clears throat> A, on one hand, <clears throat> excuse me, use them in a much more coherent way, or B, once you put them on paper, you realize that you're wrong about it. You have these vague ideas, these gut feelings, and then once you put them on paper, you say, oh, no, that actually looks ridiculous. That feeling that I had is not actually true. So writing is a, was a really great way to just clarify a lot of the investing thoughts that I had. I also thought it was great and helpful to be a writer looking from the outside in, rather than someone who was you know, a fund manager who was in the trenches, so to speak, and is, uh, is, is actually out there investing. I thought it was actually great to be someone who was just, uh, you know, didn't have a lot of the biases and a lot of the uh, influences that people did in the, you know, who were working in the field. If I could just take an outsider's view, that was actually a really interesting view for me to take that I right. thought was, was interesting for me. So that's so, so since then, even though I didn't have any plan to do this, I've been a full-time financial writer for 14 years now. And I write kind of at the intersection of investing history 
and investing psychology? What is the history of how people think about financial risk and greed and fear and opportunity? What can we learn about from you know, their lessons, their learnings from those things? And how can we think about money and investing in a more productive way? Oh, fantastic. And uh, you've been writing for about 15 years now, and uh, you've covered investing and investing psychology and how people think about and behave around money. And you've said that investing is not the study of finance, but that investing is a study of how people behave with money. And you tend to move away from the thought of finance as a math-based field, but more of a behavioral-led field. Would you explain this a little more to us? Yes, I think typically when we think about finance and when we are taught finance, particularly in schools, it is taught like a math-based field where there are formulas and there's data and we can have, you know, the, the, the formulas give us an answer, a precise answer that we can follow and then there's the right answer for everyone. You know, if we're talking about discounted cash flows or something, it's a very scientific math-based field. And it's not that that stuff is wrong. It's not that it's bad. It's not that whatsoever. But I think the psychological side of money is just so much more important because it has the ability to neutralize any of the analytical side of investing. What I mean by that is this, you can be the best stock picker in the world, the best investor in the world. You can have a PhD in finance from Harvard, but if you panic in March of 2020, when the economy is looking like it's melting down or in 2008 during the financial crisis, if you panic and lose your ability to think about greed and fear in a calm way, none of the analytical abilities that you have matter at all. It's good. So it's not that the, the psychology side is, is just the single most important part. It's not necessarily that. It's that it has the ability to overwhelm and override the analytical side of investing that we pay so much attention to. So, right. uh, so even if um, you know, the analytical side of investing is so important, you need to understand the rules, the math, you need to understand the logic behind how investing works. I think it is the single most important part that you need to do before that is understand the, your own relationship with greed and fear and opportunity and where your flaws are and embracing your own flaws, embracing your own goals, your own quirks, what you want out of life, and using that to kind of uh, be a filter of the analytical side of investing that we tend to view it as, as the only side of investing. So it's, it's not that it's, uh, you know, it's just this, it's that we need the, psych the psychology side to blend with the analytical side that we pay so much attention to. All right. And this is part of what you have addressed in your latest book, that is the psychology of money, Timeless Lessons on Wealth, Greed, and Happiness. Would you tell us a bit about the book, Morgan? So, so the book is, uh, you know, during my, you know, I, when I wrote the book, 12 years of writing about this stuff, what were the, the 19 or 20 most important points that I came across that I thought were most relevant to understanding the psychology of money? And yeah. I wanted to make it 19 separate points, specifically because most books, uh, readers don't finish. They, they don't read to the last page. And the reason is because most topics, most points that you're trying to make do not require 250 pages to get your point across. So I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to make one point in this book that I just rambled on about for 20 chapters. I wanted to make 20 distinct separate points, each of which is fairly short. And uh, the, the, the chapters can all actually live on their own. If you want to start the book on chapter 17, you can do that. Uh, they all kind of live on their own. They all have a, a common theme to them. But I, I just wanted to say, what were the most important points and how can I explain those points yeah. with a story that people would hopefully find somewhat interesting? Most of the stories, by the way, have nothing to do with investing. They are stories that, from different fields that teach people about behavior. Because again, as you mentioned earlier, investing is not the study of finance. 
Uh, finance is not the study of investing. Investing is a study of how people behave with money. So there are a lot of things that we can learn from other fields that also study human behavior that can teach us something really fundamental and important about how we can manage our money and manage our investments in a better way. So that's how the book is structured. 19 very short stories. Some of the chapters are one or two or three pages long. They're not long at all, but that's how I want it because I didn't want to ramble incoherently and just add a bunch of fluff onto one topic. Um, so, so, so hopefully that's, you know, the, 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 the metric that I wanted to really maximize for is how many people finish the book, not how many people buy the book or start the book, but how many people read to the last page. That's the metric that I think is really relevant to this book doing well. Right. And you said 19 stories, short uh, storytelling kind of a style. And if you were to give a 360 degree kind of insight, Morgan, what would you say then tend to be the winning kind of behavior and thought processes when it comes to handling money and investment? I think if you had to make like the golden rule of finance and summarize it, like the most important point, it's spend less than you make and be patient. If you could do those two things, that is 90% of what matters in doing well over the course of your, of the, of your life uh, financially. Can you live below your means? So it means you're consistently saving money. You have a level of savings and room for error and whatnot. And also, can you be patient? Can you invest for the long run and endure and absorb all the volatility and downturns that happen between now and the rest of your life? If you can do those two things, that's, that's 90% of what you need to know. Now, here's what's important. Those two things are so simple and so basic, so obvious to people. Save your money and be patient. Okay, it's so simple. The, reason, the, the fact that they're simple means that smart people do not take them very seriously mm. because very smart people think that if it's important, it has to be complicated. It has to be complex. It has to be something that is, you know, done with a really complicated formula that's hard to wrap your head around. So they tend to discount the simple stuff, even if the simple stuff is so fundamentally important. Here's one example of how this works like in medicine, or like, like the, the war on cancer. Uh, the, what we can do to make the biggest leg up in the war on cancer is not necessarily coming up with a new cancer treatment or a new yeah. cancer, you know, cure or something like that. It's not that, like that's very important, of course, but the biggest leg up that we can make in the war on cancer is prevention. It's reducing smoking and getting people to have a better diet and exercise. That's how you can win the war on cancer. But that idea of just, hey, quit smoking and eat a better diet, that is too simple for most cancer researchers, most cancer fundraisers to take seriously. They want to fund the more complicated stuff because it's more intellectually stimulating. It's more exciting. Uh, It's how they use their big brains, put their education to work. The same thing happens in investing where spend less money than you make and be patient. It's just not intellectually stimulating enough for smart people to take seriously. So they discount it. They don't take it as seriously. Even though if you want to do well over time, that's where the majority of your focus should go. So I think a good financial takeaway, the best financial advice that you can give someone else or to take for yourself is take a simple idea and take it seriously and realize that there are no points awarded for difficulty in investing in finance. And the simple stuff is actually what matters the most that we should be paying the most attention to. Right. So spend less than you make and invest more. And I'm sure so many people have asked you this question, Morgan. What's the point then? Uh, What's the point of being wealthy if you are investing to be wealthy, if you can't enjoy your money, if you have to spend way less than what you're making? I think there's two ways to think about money that you've saved and not spent. One is that, uh, you know, money that you have not spent is just, it's 
delayed gratification. You save money today so that you can buy a car a year from now or two years from now. You're just delaying that gratification, but you're going to spend it. You're, you're going to spend it eventually. To me, I've often thought there's another way that your savings provides you a benefit, which is that every amount of savings and wealth that you have, wealth being unspent money that you have, that actually gives you a level of independence, gives you a level of freedom. It gives you a level of controlling your time, controlling your future outcomes in a way that I think to me at least gives me a lot of benefit today. It's not delayed gratification. If I save $100, that to me is not $100 of delayed gratification. That is $100 of independence that gives me pleasure and happiness right now today. Now that's different for different people. But to me, I think a level of financial independence and freedom and controlling your time is how you can use money to give yourself uh, a lasting level of happiness that you're not going to get accustomed to. You're not going to get used to like so many of the, the uh, physical goods that we buy. If we're buying a nice car, a nice clothes, a nice house, whatever. It's not that those things don't make people happy. They do. It's just that the happiness tends to wear off over time. Whereas being independent, having control over your time, control over your future outcomes is something that I think brings people a lasting level of joy. And really what it does, the nuance here, if you are financially independent or you just have a level of independence because it exists on a spectrum, it's that you are, it's not necessarily that you're going to have more happy days and be necessarily happier. It's that you're going to have fewer miserable days, fewer days where you are reliant on other people's decisions, other people's schedules, other people's wants and desires, where you can do things on your own terms. Uh, it's, it's, it's reducing the amount of misery that you have in your life rather than giving yourself an added level of happiness, which is important nuance to it. But that's where I think that's to me personally, the greatest benefit of wealth is just a level of independence so that I can wake up every day and say, whatever I want to do today, that's what I can do. I can do what I want, when I want with whoever I want. That to me is going to bring a, a, a greater level of joy with money than anything, any physical good that I could purchase. All right. Absolutely. And the freedom that comes with it. Let's talk a bit about investments. And there's a lot of information overload with access to internet and what have you. Uh, when young people are thinking about venturing into investments, how can one tell what makes a good investment opportunity? And what are the things that young people should watch out for as they seek to start investing? I think it's different. You know, what, what's, what's true is that it's very different. The investing options and opportunities that exist in the United States are very different from what exists in Japan and China and Kenya and Sweden. Every country kind of has their own little quirks about how you can invest. But here's how I invest my own money. I'll, I'll give you that as, as the example of what, of what I obviously believe in because it's what I do with my own money. Rather than trying to pick the next great company, the next great stock, the next great sector, I invest as diversified as I can through index funds. And the bet that I am making there is I'm making a bet on the future of global capitalism, that over the next 10, 20, 30 years, companies are going to solve problems. And by solving those problems, it's going to increase their corporate profits in a way that's going to accrue to me as an investor that's going to do well over time. I'm making a bet on the slice of the global economy. That's what a diversified investment is. Now, so that's how I invest. But, yeah. but I think what's really important is that everyone should find an investing strategy that works for them because what works for me might not work for you because you and I might have different goals. We might have different opportunities. We might have different risk tolerances. What helps me sleep at night might not help you sleep at night. Everyone is different in a way that is okay. So reasonable, rational people can disagree. I think if you are going to be out picking individual companies, individual stocks, uh, what is so really important, this is true for index investing as well, but it's very important for stocks as well, for individual companies, is that what you are paid for in investing, how you make money, the reason that you make money, why you're actually paid to do well, 
uh, is dealing with uncertainty and volatility. That's the cost of admissions that you need to pay in investing to do well over time. So if you are investing in any sort of, of stock, whether it is an index fund or an individual stock, you need to realize that it is, it is, not, only, uh, is not only common, it's basically guaranteed, but it's actually the reason you're paid that the, the investments that you own might fall 20, 30, 40, 50%. And that's okay. That doesn't mean you did necessarily you did anything wrong. And that is the path, that is the cost of admissions. And over a much longer period of time, that huge volatility, huge volatility will smooth its way out and likely give you a long-term return. But you need to be able to put up with and endure that volatility to get the long-term return. Now, that's not intuitive because so many people, if they were to experience the stocks that they own falling 30, 40, 50%, they would say, this doesn't feel right. Something feels broken. I clearly did something wrong. So I'm going to sell and I want out. And that is the behavior that causes so many investors to do poorly over time is uh, viewing the volatility in the stock market as a signal that they did something wrong. And so they bail, they leave, they sell. And I think if you can view the volatility as, as more of a cost of admission for why you're going to do well over time, then when you do experience a big bear market and your stocks, your portfolio is declining by a big amount, you view it in a much calmer way. And you say, look, I, I expect that this is going to happen over the normal course of my investing career. Even if I, you know, I, I'm confident I'm going to do very, long, very well over the long run, I know this is going to happen in the short run. I've always thought and people should save like a pessimist and invest like an optimist. Mm -hmm. The reason they should do that is because you need to save like a pessimist because the short run is always filled with bad news, recessions, bear markets, pandemics, terrorist attacks, whatever it is. There's always bad news in the short run that you need to prepare for and survive financially. Make sure that you don't get you know, forced out. If you lose your job, you're not forced to sell all of your stocks or you're not buried in debt. You need to save like a pessimist to deal with a lot of short-term shocks, but you should right. invest like an optimist. And realize that over a long period of time, humans are very good at solving problems. Humans are very good at getting more productive. And those solving problems and productivity are going to accrue to you as wealth as an investor. If you can have that barbell personality of being optimistic about the long term and reasonably pessimistic about the short term in a way that makes you kind of paranoid and make sure that you can survive. You don't have cash and low debt so that you can survive the short term. I think if you can put those two things together, then no matter how you are investing, you are putting the odds of success in your favor to do well over time. All right. And um, you have said that when you are investing, when you're thinking about investing and just about how to think about money, that making mistakes, which is what you have touched on, should not really deter people, that there are chances you will fail up to more, upward of half the times. Um, but at what point do you then tell that this is a mistake that is still just part of the learning curve and what should show you that you're doing something wrong? I think, uh, well, here's what's important. The, the, the point that you touched on is so important in investing, which is that you can be wrong half the time and still do very well, which is just this point that, look, if you invest in 100 companies, you make 100 different investments, you should expect as a normal path, the path that you should expect to happen, that probably upwards of half of those investments that you make will not do well over time. Half of them might go out of business. Half of them might go to zero. And that's okay. That's if you do well over time. Because how investing works is if you make 100 investments, maybe five or 10 of them will do so well that it will make up for all the losses that occur. No one can make 100 stock investments and all 100 of them do well. Nobody can do that. Warren Buffett can't do that. George Soros can do that. No one can do that. So understanding that a good chunk of your portfolio is going to do poorly is really important because it's not intuitive. So a lot of people, if they do make 20 or 30 or 100 investments, 
we'll look at the ones that failed and say, I screwed up, I did something wrong here. Uh, so I think rather than if you were to look at your portfolio and say, you know, is this normal volatility or is this a permanent loss? To me, a better way to look at that is realizing that permanent loss across a subset of your portfolio is normal and should be expected. This is even true if you are an index fund investor. In the United States, we have an index called the Russell 3000, which is a big index of 3000 publicly traded companies, large companies, mature companies. If you look at how those 3000 companies have performed over the last 30 years, 40% of them went out of business. Now the index itself did very well over time. If you invested in the Russell 3000, you made a lot of money over the last 30 or 40 years, even though 40% of the companies inside of the index went out of business. And so I think that's true in any portfolio uh, that you are, that a lot of what you do is going to fail. It's going to maybe even go bankrupt and go out of business. And that is okay. As long as a small subset of your portfolio does very well, that's the best that you can hope for. So wrapping your head around the idea that, you know, tails drive returns that a small subset of what you do is going to account for the majority of your success. Even in the United States, the S and P 500, which is 500 companies, the majority of the gains come from, Facebook, Amazon, Google, Apple, and Microsoft, five companies out of the 500, the majority of the gains come from five of them. So that's always how it's going to be in investing. And it's one of the most important things to understand because it is so not intuitive to people. Right. And you talk a lot, Morgan, about greed and fear when it comes to behavior and thoughts about money. What would you say are key thoughts about greed and fear that you would share? me, the most important thing about greed and, and fear is that I think everyone's relationship with greed and fear is, is, slightly, is slightly different. And I don't think it's something that we can necessarily control or fix. I think how we think about greed and fear is largely inborn. And it is a function of hormones in our brain that we cannot control. We can't just read about it and get better at it. So I think rather than trying to say, how can I get better at thinking about greed and fear? I think a much better way to think about it is what is my past relationship with greed and fear and how can I just embrace that that's who I am? And, and so if you are someone who, who did panic in March of this year, if you did panic as an investor in 2008 and in 2001 during all the, the, the past big uh, bear markets, I think you should just embrace that that's who you are, that you're probably not going to fix your ability to be fearful when the market is, is declining. And that's okay, you shouldn't feel ashamed about that. It's just who you are, that's who you are as a person. And therefore you should just have an investing allocation that embraces that. So maybe if you are a person who panics in the past, you should have less of your assets in stocks than you might've thought you could have. And that's okay, there's nothing wrong with that. You shouldn't be ashamed of that. You should just embrace that that's who you are. So to me, the biggest thing about greed and fear is just being introspective about yourself. And, and embracing who you are. I've done this with myself. I probably have a slightly lower risk tolerance than most people of my age and income would. Uh, and I study this stuff for a living. But look, you can't, you can't control the hormones in your brain that are gonna control how you feel during the heat of the moment when you know, it feels like there's a threat that is threatening your finances. You can't control right. those hormones. You can't fix those. So I've just embraced that. Just embrace that that's who I am. And my asset allocation kind of reflects that. So I think right. that's, that's, that's the best way that we can think about greed and fear is just realizing that it's different for everyone and that we can't fix it. We should just embrace who we are. But that information and just getting to learn, you know, getting to share thoughts and looking at how people like you are thinking about maybe certain volatile periods, it kind of helps in managing our reactions, right? When you, when you can gather some information and kind of make predictions or know what is a rational way to behave in a certain moment. 
Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I, 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 the, the thing about predictions and behavior for me is this. I think rather than trying to predict the future of the economy, uh, and rather than saying, what is the economy going to do next? What is the stock market going to do next? I think a much better way, rather than forecasts, we should have more expectations. The difference of, that, of an expectation and a forecast is simply this. If I say there's going to be a recession in March of 2023, that's a forecast, very specific mm -hmm. forecast of what's going to happen next. Versus if I say, we should, we, you should expect there to be two or three recessions per decade because that's what's happened historically. That's very different. That's an expectation. A forecast is a very precise thing of when you think something's going to happen. An expectation is just a baseline set of assumptions about how the economy works. And I think expectations are much better, a much better way to think about economic risk and predictions than forecasts. It's very similar to if you live in California, you know there are going to be earthquakes as part of your future. You know there's going to be big earthquakes but you can't predict when an earthquake is gonna come. You can't forecast earthquakes. So rather than trying to predict when the next earthquake is gonna happen, if you live in California, you are just prepared for them to happen at any moment. You build your house so that it is prepared to absorb it at any moment. The, the, the firefighters, the emergency crews are prepared for them at any moment. No one tries to forecast it though. We should think about recessions and stock market crashes in the exact same way, that no one knows when they are gonna come. I mean, think about this, over the last decade, we debated in the United States, what was the biggest economic risk? And we debated, was it gonna be Ben Bernanke, the former Fed chairman? Was he the biggest risk to the economy? Was it Barack Obama? Was his, were his stimulus policies, was that the, the biggest risk? Was it Donald Trump? Were his trade wars, his crazy policies, was that the biggest risk? And it turns out the answer was no. None of those things were the biggest risk. The biggest risk was COVID-19 that no one was talking about, no one could see coming. It was this thing that was impossible to predict. That's always the case, that the biggest risk in the economy is always what no one is talking about. Because if no one's talking about it, no one is prepared for it. That's what causes the most damage over time. The biggest economic risk is never what the things are, what the people are talking about. It's never the trade wars, the budget deficits. It's not that those things aren't risky. It's that we are prepared for them because we're talking about them. If you look historically, the biggest economic risks have been September 11th, uh, the financial crisis of 2008, COVID-19, these things that no one could have seen coming or impossible mm -hmm. to predict until they occur. Uh, and if you, if you realize that that's the case, that the biggest events of our future are also going to be things that no one is talking about today. The biggest economic story of 2021 is something that you and I are not talking about today because it's impossible to know today. That's true in any given year. Yeah. If you think about that, that mindset, then it pushes you more towards an expectation versus a forecast. I have no idea what the economy is going to do next, but I expect there to be two or three recessions per decade. I have no clue what the stock market is going to do next, but I expect there to be a 10% decline at least once a year and a 20% decline at least every two or three years, because that's what's happened historically. Now, when those things occur then, if that is part of my baseline expectation, when they occur, it's not quite as scary um, yeah. that, than it otherwise would be, because I know, hey, it's not that this is fun. It's not that I enjoy going through this, but I expected this to happen. I, I, I expected as part of my baseline assumption as an investor that this was going to occur. All right. Great. And uh, just to pick some of the lessons that you have picked up, uh, you know, in the course of your career, your life uh, regarding handling money and investments, is there an investment decision that you personally uh, regret making or not making in the recent past? And why did you make the decision and why do you regret it? I mean, I, I don't necessarily have any regrets. I have a lot of mistakes. Uh, okay. It's not that I've done everything right, but mm -hmm. 
but I don't necessarily regret them because most of the big mistakes I made, I made when I was young and I didn't have very yeah. much money and I learned a good lesson from it. So that's, that's important. So you know, to say that I've done everything right, no, 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 it's not that whatsoever. But I think a regret, a regret would be if you knew that something was wrong and you still did it. That would be regretful. But making a mistake that you, that you really thought was the right thing to do and it turned out wrong, that to me wouldn't necessarily be a, a regret. So, um, and look, a lot of people do have legitimate re regrets because they know that going into a ton of debt or buying penny stocks or whatever it is, they know that that is risky, but they still do it because they don't have a good grasp on greed and fear. Yeah. Um, so that to me would be, a, re would be a, a regret, but making an innocent mistake that you learn from, and I've had a lot of those. I mean, when I started investing, I was day trading. That was how I first got into it. And I lost a lot of money and I said, okay, I learned my lesson. I'm not going to do that again. I don't regret that in the slightest because it got me on a better path. Um, so uh, yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a lesson, not a regret. And um, what would you dif do differently then? Were you to start your career over again? Uh, what would you advise your younger self? I would tell myself, and this applies to a lot more than investing in finance. I yeah. would tell myself that it, 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 that things would be okay. Like th things, yeah. things would work out. I'm a naturally a worrier. I'm a worst case scenario kind of guy. And the yeah. amount of stress and worry and anxiety that I gave myself in the economy, in my investments and in the rest of life, I wish I could just tell myself things were okay. It's not that things were good. I had a lot of, there have been problems. There have been issues like everyone else, yeah. but think things worked out. Now look, for some people, they don't work out. Of course, there are tragedies in life. Of course, I wanna, I wanna be sensitive to that. But the amount of worry that I have had on a daily basis about, let's just, let's just confine this to investing. The amount of stress that I had in 2008, 2009, um, did, it, did, it, did it help me at all? Did it do anything? No, I don't, I don't think it did. I don't think it gave me any benefit but it gave me a lot of downside. So I, I, that would be my, my advice to my, my younger self and yeah. to younger people is just, look, things are, things are probably, if you make the right decisions and put the odds of success in your favor, things are probably going to be okay. You should right. worry less than you probably do. Right. But you and I are both warriors in that sense. Yeah. And uh, as what skill sets would you say, Morgan, you find underappreciated but are vital for growth in life generally and in the workplace as well. I think uh, you know, definitely in investing, a good skill set that's underappreciated is um, being skeptical and not being gullible because so much in investing are these opportunities that people give us or that we see to make a ton of money. And the vast majority of those opportunities will not work out well. That's just how it works. So I think if you could be a little bit skeptical about opportunity, not too skeptical, not cynical. But if you could be a little bit skeptical about opportunities and say, well, look, this person says I can make 10 times the money. Is that really true? What am I missing here? What, what, what is the other side of the story? I think a healthy level of skepticism is incredibly important. Now it gets dangerous if it turns into cynicism and you say, and rather than being skeptical, you just say, uh, you, 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 you turn into like long-term skepticism. That, that, that I think is dangerous. You have to be an, a long-term optimist. You have to know that opportunity does exist. Excuse me. Uh, but um, you know, I, I think most investing problems come from people not being skeptical enough and being too gullible and finding an opportunity that looks a little bit like, oh, there might be something here and they put all of their money into it and they end up regretting that. So I think skepticism is probably the most overlooked, underappreciated, helpful investing behavior, investing trait. 
And you've written a bit about the power of compound interest. Could you expound on this a bit and how it impacts on the returns of investors? I think what's important about compounding is just how not intuitive it is. Even if you understand the math behind compounding, our brains are just not meant, they're, they're, our brains are not built to be able to wrap our heads around how powerful compounding is and how it works. I make the point in the book that 99% of Warren Buffett's net worth came after his 50th birthday and 97% came after his 60th birthday. Uh, that's how compounding works. The majority of the gains happen in, in, after a very long period of time. Now, Warren Buffett started investing when he was 11 years old and he is 90 years old today. If he stopped investing at 65, age 65, like a normal person, and he retired at age 65, you would have never heard of him. You, you would never have become a household name. The reason that he is successful, the reason that you have heard of him and why he's famous is because he's been investing for such a long period of time. And that all the wealth that he has, 99% of the wealth he has, came after his, when he was in his, when he was after age 50, after age 60. So the most important investing, um, you, know, th you know, activity that anyone can do to improve their returns is just lengthening the amount of time that they have. Because that's when you're putting the odds of, of success in your favor. And that's when compounding works in your favor. And it's important to realize that doing well in investing is not something that takes place over one year or two years or five years, even 10 years. Uh, doing well in investing is truly a generational or a lifetime activity. And doing really well requires, if you want to do very well in investing, requires that you stay invested and remain investing consistently for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And this is why it's so important to teach young people about investing because they are the only people who have 50 years in front of them, hopefully, uh, because that's when compounding works. That's when all the magic happens in compounding. It's not something that takes place over a course of a decade. It's generations and a lifetime. Right. And you have written three books, right? And for you, what would you say are like three books and all writers that have greatly influenced your life and why? Uh, yeah, one is a, is a, a U.S. historian named Frederick Lewis Allen, who uh, lived, he, I think he died in the 1950s, but he wrote uh, three books. One of them is called The Big Change, and it's how America changed from 1900 to 1950. And there's so much technological progress that took place around the world during the first 50 years of the 20th century that is just mind-blowing. I mean, in, in 1900, it was, it was horse and buggy, and in 1950, it was nuclear bombs and jets and rockets. Like so much progress took place during that period. And his, and his book just talks about how life changed in America during those 50 years. Uh, now it changed across the, you know, it obviously changed, you know, all the way around the world, but this is just focusing on the United States and how everyday life changed um, when people had these new inventions, these new technologies. And it's so fascinating. It's such a good interesting, intriguing, eye-opening look about the power of technology, the power of how things can change in a single lifetime. That had a big influence on me. One other book okay. is a guy, is, is a book called uh, The Half-Life of Facts by a guy named Sam Arbsman. And The Half-Life of Facts, the, the, the title kind of says it all. It's across disciplines, across all kinds of disciplines, physics and biology and chemistry, things that we think we, that we know, things that we think are true, change over time. And we realize that things were wrong or things change over time and facts have a half-life. Uh, that had a huge impact on me, on myself to just be kind of humble about my beliefs. And again, to being a little bit more skeptical when you realize that things that we think are true might be turned out to be not true over time. It's that had a huge impact on just how humble I am 
with what I know and my ability to forecast over time. Right. So those are your books. Yes. All right. And um, borrowing from Patrick O'Shaughnessy, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, of Invest yes. Like the Best podcast. What is the kindest thing that someone has done for you? Oh, I love this. Wow. This is such a good question. Uh, my investing hero uh, is Jason Zweig of the Wall Street Journal. I looked up to him since I was a teenager. I think he's the best financial writer of our lives. Uh, I, just, I just admire him so much. He's not only a great writer, he's just a great human as well. And years ago, I never met him. We never met each other. But I sent him an email um, and I said, I would love to meet you sometime. I'd love to have lunch with you. And he agreed to it. And I came, I, I came up to New York and he and I had lunch and he just talked to me and kind of took me under his, under his wing and whatnot. And it meant so much to me that he would make the time to do that for me, for someone who I looked up to so much and had such a big in, in, impact on me when he owed me nothing. He didn't, he, and he's not getting anything out of this himself. This was just a kind thing that he did. And I think it's, he, he had, I don't think he had any idea how meaningful that was to me, but it was, but it was huge. And I think that's a really important thing for all of us to realize that kind things that you do to other people, you usually have no idea how much it's going to affect the other person, how meaningful it's going to be to them. You think, oh, I'm, I'm going to take this kid out to lunch. That doesn't mean anything. It was life-changing to me. So I think that's something I just try to keep in mind too, is that you, you usually underestimate how much you can impact someone else with a good deed. Right. That's amazing. And just to mention that you accepting our invitation and to speak uh, with us is a great act of kindness. So well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy it. to do it, so thank you. <laughs> so thank you so much. I don't know if we are getting questions already because I know um, we're running out of time. But as I look for that uh, and kind of edging towards winding up, what's the best career or life advice that you can give us? I think the best employees, the best workers, the best spouses, the best boyfriends, the best girlfriends, the best people that you want to be around usually aren't the smartest, even in the workplace. It's not the people who do the best work. It's not the hardest workers. It's usually the nicest. It's usually, that's who you want to be around. Your favorite coworkers are probably going to be the nicest people, even if they're not necessarily the smartest. This is something too that I think is just easy to overlook. It's just the power of being nice, being a good person, wanting to help people it's easy to underestimate how powerful that can be in your life, in your career, uh, in your relationships. But let, let's just focus on, on your career. If you had to say, if, you, if I had a magic wand and I said, um, I can either make you 10% smarter or 10% nicer, what's gonna help your career more? Guarantee you 10% nicer is gonna help your career more. Guarantee you. Uh, you, you I mean, a, a lot of it is you can learn how to be smart. And well, no, no, here, here's actually the thing. Smart is not necessarily a, a, a competitive advantage because a lot of people are smart. A lot of smart people in the world, a lot of smart people. Being nice though, is being nice is rarer than being smart is. That's how I would put it. So it's gonna, it's gonna get you farther in life than being smart. Of course you wanna be smart, you wanna be both. But I think if you had to focus on one thing, I'd focus on just trying to be nice to people. All right. Um, thank you so much, Morgan. Um, trying to see if we have a question. But just maybe we can share where um, our audience can follow you on Twitter uh, yes. because I follow you and I know you share a lot of interesting conversational thoughts and uh, 
very good follow for sure. And also to mention that you can get uh, Morgan's book, the latest book, The Psychology of Money at Amazon. So that's available there as well. Uh, so I think we want to wind up there, Eric. Yes, uh, thank you so much, Morgan. Thank you so much for having me. This, is, this has been a lot of Thank fun. I'm, I'm happy to do this. Uh, I love speaking with investors and people from all over the world, from different countries who have different experiences. So this is an honor for me to get to do this as well. Yes. Thank you so much for coming. And we will look forward to having you again and uh, for more books. And yeah, so people can follow you on Twitter uh, as always. And uh, you're very active. You have a blog also, Collaborative Fund blog. They can also read what you write there. Uh, we can say that as Kenyan investors, you're very famous in Kenya, by the way. So we welcome you there sometime <laughs> to come and uh, enjoy our cup of tea and, uh, you know, uh, take chai. We call it chai down there. So I would, you're welcome I would love to join that. us. I would love to do that in the future when this whole crazy COVID year is behind us. I would love that. Please consider Kenya a place to come for holiday next time. Thank you so I'm much. And uh, maybe so just to mention, just, just uh, also to appreciate the Abojani community, which made this possible. And Abojani, Abojani rather community is um, one of like-minded African invest, investors and is a safe community where investors learn from each other and share their experiences. So of course, a very good platform. And thank you, Morgan, for gracing this community with your presence. Thanks very much for having me.